Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, January 20, January 3rd, 2024, the first edition of the Roundup for the new year. Thank you so much for joining me today as we get into a new year of questions related to international education and what our profession uh, is doing, how it is changing, and how it can respond to the changes that are coming down the pike from government regulations to new source markets to new trends in the industry. All of these uh, are topics that are fair game for our midweek roundup. So we appreciate you being with us for this inaugural edition of the 2024 version of the midweek roundup. I uh, hope you all had a pleasant holiday break, a chance to relax and recharge after a wild end to the 2023 calendar year on a lot of different levels. And we appreciate you being a part of the conversation today. For those that are new to the Roundup, we, each week we take uh, the questions we ask in the Roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays at typically 9 a.m. Eastern. If you get the email version, if you get the LinkedIn version, that comes out about 8.30, about a half an hour early. And uh, I'll be dropping the links to this week's edition, both the email version as well as the LinkedIn version into the chat so that you have that in case you are looking to uh, sign up if you're not already signed up. Uh, the link to our newsletter uh, starts uh, with our website, smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. And on that site, on that particular page for subscribe, you're able to go uh, down, drop your information in, in the, on the subscribe button, and you'll get the email version, if you prefer that way of getting this information, in your inbox every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, if you prefer via LinkedIn, uh, you can get that a half an hour early. Uh, the link to this most recent edition uh, from Monday is, or excuse me, this week's edition came out on Tuesday because of the new year. Because uh, no one was in the office on Monday, I hope. And that uh, will show you a quick way to subscribe to that if you go to this week's edition of the newsletter. So the newsletter covers all things related to social media and international education and oftentimes where those two topics intersect. And we talk about uh, on Wednesday the th some of the key themes we see developing in the news stories uh, for that week and we cover those a little bit more in depth. You get the hot takes on Monday for each of those news stories and then here on Wednesdays we go a little bit more in depth and share our perspective on how these new new regulations that we're going to talk about here in a minute with USCIS might impact what we do in international ed and how we can take advantage of some of that on the marketing side, on the front end of the process. But we'll also uh, take a look, a look forward into 2024 as to what uh, the future of international ed holds, given a lot of the change that is happening in our industry. And specifically, we'll look at Australia's new migration strategy today and see what, that, what the implications might be from those changes that they are imposing. So let's get right into it. The first question of the day, what do new USCIS regulations mean for international students? Now, for those of you who are new uh, to um, uh, the midweek roundup or new to international ed and you don't know necessarily what we're talking about here, uh, with regard to these uh, immigration regulations, there's uh, three or four articles I'll be sharing in the chat. Uh, first of which is from the Pi News, our good friends there, uh, talking about uh, the updated policy guidance for international students. There's also uh, an, uh, an, an article coming, coming out that shares uh, some details uh, from an organization called Boundless 
understanding the new USCIS policy guidance for international students and companies. And that's one of the big uh, new uh, features in this policy guidance that we'll be sharing with you. And the final piece uh, is from uh, India, and we know how obsessed the India market is with employment-related news. And we'll talk about how these fit into uh, the mix for international students in India in one of the most uh, post-study work obsessed uh, markets on the planet. Uh, students in India that are looking to come to the U.S. will see this news from USCIS uh, CIS, uh, interpretation of regulations and what those mean uh, for them and their futures. And this is uh, what we're talking about here today. There's, let's, let's kind of run through what the policy guidance is. Uh, first up, uh, the one that's gonna, grabbing the most headlines is that International students who are in STEM fields in particular uh, that are applying for, um, for jobs out in the world uh, after they are finished with their degrees uh, through STEM OPT. They have up to three years, but they apply for initial year, then they can get extended for two more years. One of the benefits that has kind of been a little bit unclear in the past as to whether or not uh, international students can work for startups. Startups typically are in the tech industry, uh, in STEM-heavy fields. So uh, this uh, policy guidance now addresses that uh, and their ability, international students' ability, to work for startups uh, as STEM students, STEM graduates. Uh, what the regulations do say that it is possible that, uh, that, that international students can work for startups as long as, and there are some caveats here, uh, that they have, a, obviously, a well-established training plan, which is part of the STEM OPT extension, that they, uh, the companies must, uh, have, must be enrolled in E-Verify and provide compensation commensurate to that provided to similarly situated U.S. workers, among other requirements. So uh, that is the new policy guidance. So it's allowing for international students to work for uh, these uh, tech companies, these startup companies that uh, might not have all uh, be well established and know that it's even an option to hire international students. They now uh, oftentimes see startups might have been former international students who are starting them. So hopefully they see the value and this will be a very significant uh, uh, improvement in terms of allowing those employers to hire international students because as long as they're in the E-Verify and they provide the right compensation, then they should be good to go. So uh, there's some other minor things that uh, some colleagues have commented already on LinkedIn when I, this article got posted, uh, when I put this article out yesterday, uh, that uh, the startups that are oftentimes uh, uh, flying by the seat of their pants, uh, they, they might not be enrolled in E-Verify, they might not know that, uh, what the proper compensation levels need to be. So what could go wrong, someone said. Uh, thank you, Alan, for that comment. But uh, the point is of these, um, these new rules as it relates to uh, the ability for international graduates, F1 students who are in the STEM fields to ap apply for, uh, for employment at startup companies, that those startup companies, if they're in E-Verify and provide uh, appropriate levels of comp compensation equal to what U.S. Uh, similarly situated U.S. workers uh, would typically get, then they uh, should be okay. So uh, this is, uh, and when I, when I, all of the time, anytime I, we answer, pose one of these questions on the roundup, it's always with a view to, okay, how does this help us? How does this hurt us? How do we respond to the news, I think is part of it. Obviously, the most immediate impact is 
uh, International Student Scholar Services offices need to be sharing this with their students uh, to let them know, and most all of them are already uh, were aware that this was coming, so that they're already in, have this in their in their process of in informing their current international students of what the changes in immigration regulations are. And in a positive way, this is certainly one of those. Now, one of the things that is, uh, is in, this, in, this, in this language, one of the other requirements, it does see that, uh, it does say in the new guidance that international students, though they are technically uh, not in a non-immigrant category, uh, they still must, they, the, the, the clarification says they still must maintain their permanent residency abroad in their home country, wherever that is. But it does not, that does not prohibit them from applying for, applying for uh, benefits that have permanent residency intentions. Now, this is it's, uh, the coexistence of these two. It's one of the great dichotomies of, uh, and challenges of understanding U.S. immigration regulations is how can F-1 students uh, stay in the United States to work uh, and then as on, uh, still on their student visa and then transition to an H-1B, which is a, a dual intent category, can be a worker visa where that does lead to permanent residency. But it does say that these F-1 students that even though they must maintain their permanent residency abroad can apply for benefits that do uh, or changes of status that do allow them to have a permanent, eventually permanent residency. So it's 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 a very complex web of uh, legalese and, and immigration regulations. But the the basic gist of it is: F one students are non-immigrant visas, H one visas are dual intent visas. And for many in the industry, uh, in the international ed side, working with students, we have lobbied, as uh, the Biden administration has in two previous immigration bills, one that they introduced right after they uh, took office uh, as part of their larger Build Back Better bill that kind of got lost in the shuffle, didn't get approved, was to make F-1 a dual intent category, allowing for international students not to have to prove a negative when they go for their visa interviews uh, at uh, U.S. consulates abroad. Uh, so, uh, prove a negative meaning that they don't plan to immigrate, even though it's legally possible for them to do that, they can't say that that's their intention when they go for their student visa interview. So one of the great uh, roadblocks, frankly, to really opening the floodgates for international students to, to come to the United States. And I've, when I've mentioned this conversation, this, t uh, this question of would F-1 students being dual intent, when I asked this question to consular officers, the people who are on the front lines doing the visa interviews every day with prospective students, I asked, would that change the way you do things? Uh, and they said, they, to a person, they've all said it'd be a game changer because it removes that hurdle if F-1 now becomes dual intent that the student doesn't have to show that they're going to return home when they're done with a program, done with their OPT, that they can have a thought in their head that, hey, I might want to stay in the U.S. and, and live and work and, uh, on a more semi-permanent basis. And that's okay. That's what we would want, I, or we would hope, uh, from, a, from a government that is encouraging the best and the brightest to come to our country. Uh, yes, we, want, uh, we don't want there to be brain drain in, in countries. Not, there's a lot of other issues involved here. But the reality is, our system is set up to prevent the best and the brightest and put, or not prevent necessarily, but put significant hurdles in their path if they're going to become um, permanent residents and eventually citizens here.
but many still do it. And that's one of the great uh, attractions of the United States because of the quality of programs, because of the quality of life in the United States. It has attracted uh, immigrants from around the world for years, including students who aren't technically immigrants when they come, but they can, can be eventually. So these regulations are a positive. Uh, and let's not forget the importance here. These are a positive if we're able to to spin that, not spin, actually interpret that and translate that to prospective student audiences abroad. Now, this is, the, this is where a lot of the disconnects happen on campuses. We know these regulations are intended to be for the current students that are in the United States now that are on OPT or soon to be on OPT that are STEM students that have that extra two years of work eligibility, that they want to know this because it immediately impacts their ability to find jobs at different kinds of companies than they might have initially been look, looking at. The, where we often see the disconnects happening is saying, wow, this can be a benefit to us as an institution, to our country, if we start promoting this to prospective student audiences. We all have comp flows that we send out to prospective students uh, overseas. Uh, hopefully there's a specific international student comp flow at your institution. If not, that's a, that's will be something that you're working toward. I know we're working toward that at, at UNLV. But for us, when you think about the kinds of messages you send out, the kinds of messages you send out related to jobs after graduation and ROI outcomes, all of those kinds of things that exist somewhere in your comp flow. Uh, th this, is a, this is something that you can add into those comp flows and message out separately on social and, other, and other, other platforms. Maybe have your career services director do something specifically about that. Uh, interview them about this topic and how, what that means for, their, for them uh, as they advise international students who are looking for jobs when they're done with their degree or in their final semester. So this is something that should, can and should be used on the prospective student side to recruit new students to your campuses. When you can say that what that you not only can come to the United States and if you're in STEM fields, work up to three years per degree level, bachelor's, master's, doctorate, you can work three years after you finish each of those degrees if you're in a STEM field. But now to expand that to say, you can work for startup companies in your field that might uh, might not ordinarily have been in the mix for potential employers for you as an international student before this ruling came out or this uh, new regulation or interpretation of the regulation came out. So this is, this is a, a, an important step forward for, uh, for international students. And one of the things we often forget, we can be good even if even on our institutional uh, campuses, we can be good about talking about our career services, what services they do for international students, what graduation rates are for international students, job placement rates, all of that. Hopefully you can get to that at, at some point with your institutions. But if you can add this to the mix and say to your prospective students, if you know that they're in a STEM field and you uh, and they're and they're they're they may be looking to work after and take advantage of that three years of post study work, if you can say to them not just what your office is doing, but what the the United States is doing to enable them to be successful after they're done with their degrees here, this is a step forward in allowing and expanding the range of options that international students in STEM fields that are will have when they start looking for jobs if they know that they can look at startups and then get making sure those startups are enrolled and you verify and have the right levels of compensation all that uh, those are big ifs but it can happen but it's a it's a marketing tool 
that we can and should be using. Not just a change in regulations that will impact our current students, which will be great, but it should, can and should be change how we market to prospective students who are thinking about outcomes, who are thinking about what am I going to do when I'm done with my degree? What kinds of jobs can I get? This opens a new range of possibilities for them. So why would you not want to tell future students about this opportunity? So this is what we talk about all the time in connecting the dots on campus, that it is not just the international student journey of uh, enrollment management is getting them to your campus and making sure they get enrolled and arrive and uh, register for classes, all of that, get their health insurance, all those things that we know they have to do. It's about those getting them through their entire time on your campus, through housing, through uh, food service, through residence life, through uh, student affairs, through career services, through student employment, through alumni office, all the way through that process. When you connect the dots, about the stu international student experience and think about what is out there that can help improve their opportunities, like something like this re regulation change that just came out. And then you put that back into the front end of your process. You do this through uh, uh, alumni videos, you do it with parent videos, you do it with your current student videos. Back all of that content up into your um, Comflows, into your social media outreach, and share the good news, not just about your institution and about, about what the United States is doing and the benefits that international students have and how they can be fully uh, exercised in during their time as students. And that's the picture you want to paint in your future students' minds. What is the end goal for me? What is the potential reality for me when I'm done with my degree at your institution? The more you can do that and paint that picture, the full picture of what the experience will be like on your campus and in the United States for them, the better off you're going to be in having a chance to, to enroll that student. So please make sure you're connecting those dots from the, the, these new regulations that impact your current students about to graduate on STEM OBT now. Connect that experience, what that benefit will mean to them, to future students because they want to hear that too and their parents want to hear that too. So make sure you're connecting those dots. Now, question number two, how will 2024 be different uh, for international education? And this is a big one, obviously. Uh, we're, talking about, uh, we're talking about issues related to, well, 2024, what's the, what are, what's the news, what's, uh, what's, uh, what are the kind of the hot topics of the day, uh, all of these end of year, beginning of year prediction models of uh, what's going on. I'm going to share about uh, three or four, about three or four articles here as well. All of these articles share uh, slightly different perspectives on uh, what is happening, predictions, and and uh, and some data-based uh, predictions on what the future holds, not just in 2024 but beyond. And uh, there's some article. There's an article from the Pi News University Business, and another one from uh, the Pi on predictions. And I wanted to make sure. That uh, that you had those three articles here. Now let's 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 t let's start first with uh, this landscape of international education a little bit more than just 2024. And one of the things we always talk about with uh, at SMIE Consulting uh, when we talk about our six P's of strategic international enrollment management is the first P, and probably the most important P is perspective, a perspective of uh, how you approach international. Uh, enrollment on your campuses. Uh, what are the um, perspectives on campus in terms of who 
where does where does international fit into the strategic plan of the university? Where how is it valued? Uh, what support do you have amongst campus leadership, senior leadership, but also more broadly, what's the landscape in the United States for international education and then beyond? What's happening on a global scale? Uh, what uh, we don't exist and recruit international students in a vacuum. Uh, there is an incredibly competitive global market out there for internationally mobile students. Uh, latest data from 2023, I think, shared that there was about 6.9 million students studying outside, uh, about more than 6 million students today, this, this year, uh, that are studying outside their home countries. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to the U.S. or Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, China even. Uh, they are uh, looking to go regionally, perhaps. If they're in Southeast Asia, they might be going to Singapore. They might be going to Kuala Lumpur. They might be going uh, to Bangkok. Uh, they might uh, be in, in Korea or Japan as for regional studies or in the Middle East. Uh, regional hubs have, have been popping up for years. But uh, by 2030, Hull and IQ is now predicting almost 9 million people will be studying outside their home country. That's almost 3 million more. That's a 50% increase in the number of students who will be studying outside their home country in just the next six years. So we're at 6 million now, gonna be up to almost 9 million by the end of the decade. That's a 50% increase in the number of students who will be studying abroad. They can't all come to the United States. They're not all gonna go to Australia, the UK or Canada. They got, they're gonna be spreading around and more countries will come onto that the list of top receiving nations than we have currently. Uh, we see a lot of a lot of countries are trying to become regional hubs, uh, not just global uh, uh, destinations for students. So that that the the data is showing that uh, we have seen a huge expansion in the number of students going abroad in the last thirty years. When I started in the business, I think there were less than there was about two million, two and a half million maybe. This is 1993 that were studying outside their home country. The U.S. had about 400,000 at that point, 500,000. So we had about a third of the total at that point, maybe a little less, less than 2 million. So we had about a third of the total then. We're down to less than 50, less than 20% now of the global total. Uh, we have a million students now uh, studying in the United States, but uh, there are 6 million now that are outside studying outside their home country. So uh, the pie has gotten incredibly larger. Our share of that pie has, has dropped as the pie has gotten bigger, but our numbers have, have consistently gone up bar post 9-11 and, and during the pandemic. So our numbers will are going only one direction and that's up. Uh, they might not go up as quickly as, as some other countries, but there are other dynamics at play here. And the perspective piece that I'm talking about is knowing what's happening in the wider world, that the pie is getting a lot bigger, that the amount of money that's being spent, and that was this is actually the part of this uh, pie article that I, I don't focus on, but it certainly is valuable to see, that right now, uh, by 2025, uh, Hold on IQ, who does the, also had the other data that we shared on numbers of students sitting outside their home country, has said that by 2025, so in just a year now, the global expenditure on education will top 10 uh, but well, it'll be eight trillion dollars in by in a year's time, and by the end of the decade, we'll reach ten trillion dollars by 2030. So just huge amounts of money that are spent uh, on international education and education in general. So a great article from the Pi just painting that picture. 
But uh, university business takes an uh, important look at some three ways international landscape is changing from a U.S. perspective. And that uh, first one that, I, that they talk about that I mentioned as well earlier is that international students are looking elsewhere, not, ex not to the exclusion of the United States, but they have more options that other countries, Australia, China, Canada, UK, have over the last decade had policies that were much more aggressive in terms of their uh, country's willingness to, to go out and recruit international students. Uh, that uh, these other countries have uh, developed uh, policies uh, that have encouraged, uh, that the universities have, have worked with their national governments to encourage uh, international enrollments and processes to be uh, made simpler and more transparent and more clear cut in terms of how students can go uh, once they arrive on campus and arrive in their in country and what the future might be for them after they're done with their studies. Like in the U.S., we have this dichotomy with non-immigrant students and workers and how those those are two different categories of visas. So that uh, non-immigrant and immigrant, but other countries make that path much clearer that for in Canada that we've made, we've talked extensively about how the, the they sell themselves on, if you want to stay and work, you're more than welcome to, and we encourage that. Uh, we don't do that as well here in the U.S., and we, we suffer for it. Uh, our numbers could boom if we made it much, a much clearer pathway for international students, but we don't do that right now. Uh, the, other, the second piece is that uh, there are cons to attending the United States, uh, and costs being one of the most significant there. Uh, the gun-related violence uh, in the United States uh, and heightened contentious political climate are two issues that can also put students off. Uh, and how, how do we counter that? And every, every time there's a negative, there are ways to counter that. Uh, and there's countering that through pre-departure orientations, connecting with parents, and uh, when it comes to costs, you can talk about the, the, uh, the, the, the cost-benefit of what the end result is, the return on investment, all those kind of things. But you have to have the data to hopefully back that up. And the third piece is the, the how online education is changing the dynamics of what is possible for students in particular countries to, in terms of study, that maybe they won't be able to spend their full degree uh, in three years or four years or five years to finish their degree in your, in your country at your institution. Maybe they do their first year or two online and then transfer in. So all of these are ways that, um, and that's also a way to help level uh, reduce those costs is if they're doing online education for a year or two that reduces their the, the total cost that they're going to have to pay because they don't have the living expenses piece that they have to be responsible for. So, so a good piece there. The final is um, a prediction uh, piece from the PI uh, with analysis from some industry leaders from ETS, uh, from uh, from uh, Oxford International Education Group and a couple other folks, uh, Tara Dada, uh, uh, also contributed to this. And they have uh, make all of their predictions are, are well and good, but the, the reality is of, of where they all share similar themes is talking about that perspective that to be truly successful in this day and age, universities need to have a global perspective on what's going on in the wider world and what competitive benefits are of universities and countries are compared to us so that we know how to counter that or position yourself in a better way to when you're talking to students who might be looking at Canada or might be looking at China or might be looking at Australia or the UK, you have 
uh, information about what, where they are, but also you know where you are, and you can talk in intelligently to prospective students, future students, about how what the differences are in the United States that make it a better opportunity potentially than going somewhere else. So it's all, again connecting the dots on all these and having that kind of global perspective. Now let's talk specifically in our last question of the day is how uh, or what are the details of Australia's new migration strategy? Uh, these have been floated around. There was a lot of predictions on that there were going to be caps introduced by the Australian government and that has not yet been the case with what's been released so far. Doesn't I would doubt that they would go that, that extreme. But uh, the kinds of things that Australia has done, in my honest opinion, you look at what's happening, we've talked about Canada previously and the restrictions that they're putting in place. The kind of quality control that never has really existed is now the national government is starting to, to put in place in Canada. You see some of those things happening also in Australia. And I, I, I see Australia and Canada in very similar positions in terms of where their governments are, in terms of what the strategies are related to migration. Both countries need migrants to be uh, to, to grow as countries. They rely on immigrants coming in for their economy uh, to take the jobs that uh, to help their economies grow and sustain themselves. Both countries, Canada and, and Australia, they've had huge challenges with the vocational education sector, sector in both countries. Uh, they're addressing that in Canada with their designated uh, institutional framework that will root out some of the um, the visa mills or the diploma mills that uh, the Minister of Education or Immigration uh, referred to them as, uh, these kind of private for-profit uh, vocational colleges in Canada that attract 90% or more of their students from India and just kind of churn them out and drop them off into, the, into society after sucking them dry with it for their money. Uh, that is something that's being addressed in Canada. Australia is also looking to, to make similar changes for the vocational sector uh, in their country by um, looking at, frankly, they're, they're now calling it a visa prioritization uh, f as part of their late, latest migration strategy uh, that uh, will have an, introduce a new framework for processing student visas based on the risk level of institutions. So very similar to that designated institution framework that Canada is, is, is putting in. And these uh, CRICOS, uh, it's their acronym for uh, their, um, their visa process, uh, uh, their education institutions, those providers have been allocated an evidence level of one, two, or three, and immigration will use that ranking to prioritize applications with level one providers benefiting from faster processing time. Higher risk providers from the article uh, and uh, in the migration strategy, the government wrote, higher risk providers will experience slower processing times as visa decision makers consider the integrity of a provider as well as the individual student applicants. So uh, very interesting steps that that, you know, that involves there for uh, the visa prioritization. Uh, the, there are impacts, obviously, with this change in migration strategy at the government level to those international students currently enrolled down under at uh, universities in Australia. And this is, um, this is something that uh, you, you, when you look at uh, what do they live, what are they uh, uh, what are they? What are they talking about here? Why are they left in limbo? Because they're they're changing uh, the maximum eligible age for international students to get a temporary graduate work visa. That's our equivalent of OPT. Will be reduced from 50 to 35, so it can't be older. So is that ageist? Uh, they're reducing that age from 50 to 35. Uh, that it is a it's a the strategy is to build Australia's skilled workforce. 
some international students are uh, currently studying the skills in demand or fears because they're turning 36 uh, after they graduate. So uh, they'll be left out of that process. Uh, so that, that's some, uh, that temporary graduate visa process is a challenge for some of these students. But the two biggest changes that will uh, impact future students coming to Australia is that the post-study work visa is being cut by two years. So uh, in some cases, uh, the work visas are five-year visas that are, that are being cut to three. In other cases, they're four-year visas uh, being cut to two. Uh, so uh, then this is, so, that, so for undergraduates, they have four years, uh, have had four years, they will only have two years. Master students within selected disciplines uh, typically have been, uh, uh, have been five years, they'll only be able to do three. So uh, two and three years, uh, respectively. So then this, there was a, this was a, sort of a pandemic era test uh, to give them extended work rights, but that those work rights are being reduced back to the two and three years, respectively, for bachelor's and master's degree candidates. The other uh, is uh, we, we, to, uh, we talked about the impact this has had in Canada, uh, that they've, uh, in terms of working hours for students during studies, uh, that the, the they ended those uh, uncapped work hours in Australia, now back down to the 20 per week. And then the other is the English language requirement. Uh, they are introducing uh, a, an increase from 6.0, uh, uh, from, let's see, uh, make sure I get this right, uh, that they, uh, in early 2024, they're gonna go up to 6.0 for student visas and up to 6.5 for temporary graduate visas. Uh, the, those, those are gonna be introduced here. And they're also going to be introducing a genuine student test uh, that will incentivize applications from genuine students who wish to study at Australian universities or education providers rather than those whose priority is to work. Uh, and that will, that's uh, uh, a new, new genuine student test that will be introduced. So how they're going to figure that out, that's uh, another question entirely. So uh, the restrictions are being put in place in Australia. The restrictions are being put in place in Canada. You've seen restrictions being put in place in the UK with their, uh, the, the elimination of the dependent uh, visas for um, non-PhD students, which the majority of those that come on with dependents are coming for master's degree students and then they're bringing whole families with them. That has now ended as of January 1st in the UK. They're also talking about potential restrictions to their graduate route, uh, the two-year post-study work visa that they have in the UK, which would be another huge restriction and it will have impacts on future students' interest in the UK. And we'll have news stories about that in the coming week, I'm sure. So uh, what uh, the Australia's uh, current policies are certainly not positive for international students that might have previously come to the US. Uh, to the UK, to Australia. Similarly, we've seen that happen in Canada, seen that happen in the UK. So US is taking some steps in the right direction to make it a little easier uh, for post-study post work opportunities for international students, particularly in the STEM fields. So important to keep that global perspective at all times, uh, and that's what we do here on the Roundup and in our newsletter. So we appreciate you uh, spending the time with us this week and uh, making 2024 the most successful in your careers. So until next time, wish you the very best. Cheers.